0: Welcome to part two of Shiloh's story. If you're new, I would recommend you go back and listen to part one so you can have the context for today's episode. Last week, we heard Shiloh talk about growing up without knowing her own culture and language, what she learned from her first job in journalism, her experiences as a missionary in Hong Kong, and the overt racism she encountered when she moved back to New Zealand. We left it at a real pivotal point in Shiloh's life and career, where she was questioning her role in an industry that has been fueling and continues to fuel racism towards Māori and other ethnic minority groups.
1: It wasn't until, I don't know if you know Stacey Morrison. Yes. Of course. (laughs) She's uh, this incredible lady and my hero. Love you, Stacey. (laughs) (laughs) She reached out to me and I was really touched by that because I didn't, she didn't know, really know me, but I knew of her. And so she called me and, and like I told her what I was going through and she just listened and she kind of helped me helped me through that. Because of her, I, I was like, okay, yeah, like, I'll stay because I can see the difference that Stacey is making in her platform of being like a Tito Māori advocate and of helping people like me. So yeah, I want to stay. I stayed at my job until I could. And then I decided to move back to Auckland, which was actually about a year ago without any job, but I decided that I would just move back because it was better for my mental health.
0: I don't know if people realize being a journalist can be so draining. Yeah. And when you're battling constant aggression and abuse all the time it's just no wonder so many people leave journalists right and go to pr <laughs> yeah <laughs> cross my mind but. yeah well yeah exactly so when you were experiencing all that racism did it fuel a fire in you yeah as well i think
1: so because i feel like um i think it's a gift actually to recognize injustice Last year was such a transformative year. Sorry, 2020, 2019 it was such a transformative year because I've experienced that racism. I was able to recognize that, okay, well, then this is what I'm going to do. I want to be a journalist that is able to change the narrative and challenge it. When I was living in Tauranga, I was also writing my book. And again, that was, I was writing about things that were so traumatizing for me that I didn't realize would affect me so much. But The book is based on what happened in Nāwha where a prison was built and the Nāwha people protested against it because it was being built on Māori land um, with thermal waters. And and during that year I was living in Tauranga, I went up to uh, Nāwha and I met a woman called Mahi and I wanted to know everything about the Nāwha prison and she was one of the lead protesters and she had kept a scrapbook of everything that happened over the four years of protest. And there are things that she showed me and told me that I had no idea. I had no idea about these kind of injustices and I was like in tears when I was sitting next to her. She showed me photos of where Komatua were being arrested um, for simply trying to protect the land. She showed me media articles from local newspapers in which how they had portrayed what had happened in NAFA, which was which was wrong and not the full story. You know, Māori are tangata whenua, which means we're the indigenous people of New Zealand, of Aotearoa. So the land was once that belonged to us. And then British or the Pākehā people came and they colonized and they took the land away from us. Um And that's like to say that in like the simple way. Land is not just land to us. It's There's so much more to it. And I think when you take away the land, you took away our identity, you took away our culture, you took away our belonging, you took away our mana um took away everything from us and you left us broken you know like it was broken people trying to pick up the pieces
0: so obviously you you always dreamed about being an author right mm-hmm. um can you tell me about the process of you know deciding on the story of your first book with the and i don't know like you must have had to think about so many yeah. things i knew
1: that i wanted to write a story that would make a difference and that would educate people and give an insight into maori culture but also i wanted to write it for maori kids like me that grew up maori not knowing or understanding who i was and learning about myself and seeing myself in stories you know i wanted to tell a story with all the layers and that's a problem that we've seen for so long with not even just maori but when stories are told by non-maori by the colonizer It's like a single story, so it becomes about a Māori person being maybe like a criminal or like a gang member or whatever. And I've said this before, but it's not that it it isn't true. It's just that it's a single story. It doesn't tell the full story. Living in Tauranga was when I finished it and I was able to really write it, but it was sort of, I worked worked on it bit by bit, but I really wrote it and finished it when I was living in Tauranga. I think like it's at a time where people are really hungry for Māori indigenous stories, and when I was writing it, Ihumata wasn't even the thing like protest and Maori was always such a negative thing that you would see like on the news where Maori were protesting. And, and it was always like weaponized as like an angry, like a, as like a negative thing. So for me, like writing this book, I didn't know like what to expect. And then I'm really grateful because Ihumata came along with the protest and that became mainstream. And then now, people want to know Maori stories or are hungry for it.
0: I think the time is really here for people to tell their own stories. Yeah, and I think it's no longer acceptable in 2021
1: for anyone to be telling us stories that that is not us. And so with the porangi boy, there are negative things in there too because you can't shy away from injustices of Maori. And like we are overrepresented in every almost every negative statistic, right? But it's a difference when compared to myself and say so like a Pākehā telling the story is that I'm telling it in, in my way from my point of view as a Māori.
0: Whether people understand the complexities of that is another story, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Yeah, so but you're actually working on a second book as well, aren't you, right mm-hmm. now? What can you tell us about that? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: the second book, um, I'm uh, I'm probably like halfway through this book. This book is about three teenagers in New Zealand whose lives come together from Black Lives Matter movement in America. So I'm really interested in the way that it affected us here in Aotearoa. You know, during the first lockdown, I remember there was the what was the first or second lockdown of last year. We had the big protests here. For me, I'm really, not I'm not surprised, but amazed at the amount of people who um, who are calling out injustice and racism from Black Lives Matter. I would have have liked that to be something that would have come earlier rather than just because this is happening in America. But it's amazing to think that what's happening all over in the States can affect us here in Aotearoa. But also um, I wonder why we can't look at our own racism. There's that myth that New Zealand isn't racist. And I remember when Taika Waititi called out that it was racist, everyone got angry at him and like, oh, he should be grateful because he's, he's doing well, you know, so it can't be racist what inspired it really i was on my walk one of my daily walks during lockdown i was listening to oprah winfrey podcast and um she was talking to maya angelo maya angelo is my absolute favorite and oprah winfrey was saying you only know what you know and then maya angelo says yeah you do only know what you know but once you know better you do better and around that same time there was a girl at a a school on the north shore a, a white girl who did blackface That photo was screenshot and shared all over social media. And it happened to be at this time where, I mean, protests were happening, George Floyd. And this girl ended up having to leave school because of what had happened. And I kept thinking, is there redemption? You know, is there redemption for people who make these mistakes or how do we move forward? Um, Because I'm not saying what she did was right. Of course, it it was totally wrong. I guess I'm just interested in like the different perspectives when it comes to racism.
0: Yeah, and how many chances do you give somebody to change the way they yeah. think and how they express themselves and whether they actually put in the work to correct their prejudices and Yeah, I mean like
1: especially if she was young, you know. Yeah. I'm definitely not saying what she did was okay, but it made me think about the way that we address racism, you know, like what's the best way to move forward? Like, I think, like, because it can be very tiring and exhausting having to uh, explain Racism 101. In 2021, like, there's no excuse now for you not to
0: know because you can literally Google anything. And it's not your job either to have to explain all of that stuff. That's what I mean. And so I don't want to have to constantly
1: explain what racism is or, like, why it's wrong. People should be doing their own homework. But at the same time, I do want to figure out the way in which we can move forward.
0: Hmm. So you came back and then you went to work for TVNZ? Yeah,
1: that was like the best opportunity for me to grow as a reporter and and being able to understand my niche of telling Maori stories. The difference between working at mainstream and working at a non-mainstream, like as a Maori um, media, was incredible because I no longer had to explain why something was a story. You know, for I think for so long, living in tauranga or like working at a mainstream, I felt the struggle of being a Maori journalist, but for the first time I felt the power. One of the biggest stories that I did was four sisters who took their step-grandfather to court for sexual abuse. So that's a horrific story, right, even just saying that. But I wanted to tell the story right and and properly. I remember the night before meeting them, and this is something like quite personal, but I felt like my ancestors and I felt their ancestors, and it was such a surreal feeling, but I felt like this urgency that the story that I was telling was, was so important. Like, really, really important. And I remember flying down the next day to Hastings where they lived. And I was thinking, like, is this normal to have this? Like, like, what, what is happening? And I met, I met the girls and it was like beautiful. And before we started the story, we said a karakia, like a a prayer. Like, and I've never really done that before and especially not in mainstream. Honestly, it was like the most enlightening spiritual experience of my life. It was such a, a horrific thing to happen to them. But we were able to turn it into something that was um, redeeming and hopeful and beautiful. And we felt that um, the whole weekend we were done with them, the amount of messages that we got from people who were able to take their perpetrator to court or to come out and say, oh, I've been abused as well, like the impact, the impact of that storytelling was, it was incredible. I just, oh man, it just made
0: me realize the power of storytelling and of, of
1: Maori storytelling.
0: It must be such an empowering feeling, being able to actually feel free to tell those stories. It's very liberating. Yeah. It's, um, it's incredible. How did you come to the decision to study te reo for a year then? I've tried, I guess, for the last
1: five years, no, three years since I've been back in New Zealand to learn te reo Maori, but I found it really difficult. I've gone to like the nightly classes. I've got all of Scotty Morrison's books. I've listened to every podcast there is. Um, I've stuck up notes up around my wall of words and it's not coming to me, you know. And then so last year, doing all these Māori stories has been really enlightening for me. But the moment that I feel like really, really did it for me was when I was in Tauranga doing another racist story. And um, this, this kayak or this teacher at a she started speaking Māori to me and I said, hey, like I can't speak Māori yet, yeah, I'm still learning. And she just looked at me and said, "Like, how can you tell us stories but not speak a language? And I remember just like looking at her and I was really hurt by what she said. And I went back into the car and I had this cry, like I was just crying. And then I was like, she's right. It's like, I, I feel like I'm not able to give all of myself to my, the work that I'm doing. And I feel like that's not going to come until the language comes.
0: When you were doing your reporting and your interviews and everything then, were you communicating in English? Or how were you communicating with the people you were interviewing? Oh, so my stories were in English.
1: Ah, oh, okay. So they had
0: a reporter
1: there that was like the Te Rau Māori person. And I remember my boss used to always say, all of the stories are to be in Te Māori this week, except for
0: Shiloh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> he wasn't meaning like harm by it but i just
0: would be like Argh. yeah i would get like so mad at myself did you ever feel not incompetent incompetent is not the right word because you're not incompetent at no, all but I, I know
1: what you're saying yeah I, did i ever feel out of place yeah I of- yeah i did and it's it's another funny thing really is that i was in mainstream feeling out of place and then coming to maori media where i was the only one that couldn't speak maori i felt out of place too so yeah, it did make me feel inferior and it did make me feel like I was still like I was still lost and still trying to figure out how to navigate all of this. I was surrounded by my colleague, Fatih, whose Te was incredible. My producer, Blake, whose Māori was incredible. But like I said, it's not just the language that they had. It's everything that encom- encompasses it. Mm. So you can see it in their or their spirit, and you can feel it. I just want to say that Stacey Morrison is like my greatest inspiration Mm. and she really is the one that motivated me actually to go and learn Māori because what I've seen like if you've ever had the opportunity to meet Stacey or Scotty there is something really special about both of them and being in the room with them it's like they just glow Mm. like they're just like these spiritual giants and you're like wow like what's so different about them (laughs) oh I know they speak te reo Māori but not only that but they use their platform to help educate and help every person in New Zealand to learn it too and they've done so much for the Māori language and they do it out of their own like sort of spare time like out of their hearts not for any kind of other means like if I think back to when Stacey called me I was like no one and I'm not saying I'm someone now but there was no motivation for her to do that except for help me and She's just an incredible, incredible role model and she has this amazing ability to walk in the Pakia world and the Maori world and be respected
0: in both. And I haven't mm. seen that before mm. from anyone. That's so awesome. That's really, really great that you have someone like that in your life. Going into your year ahead, like how are you feeling? And do you have any expectations or it's it's sort of like a terrifying feeling to go into like the unknown. From learning
1: Mandarin and going to Hong Kong, it's going kind to of be in the same way in which I didn't know what to expect and what happened and how hard it was learning Mandarin was um, harder than what I thought it would be. Like It was so hard. I used to cry every night because we would sit with Chinese people and I had no idea what they were talking about. So I know that with learning Māori, it's going to be sort of similar but probably a lot more harder because of a, a lot of trauma that might come out because so I've seen a lot of Māori who have the language now and I've seen them before, and it's almost like an indigenous glow up of like who they are. <laughs> I love that indigenous glow up. <laughs> you know, because they're so sure of themselves and their identity. Nothing can compare to being able to speak my language. Like I know that that's going to be the greatest gift that I can I can have. And what is of the greatest worth requires the greatest sacrifice.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And you you're very like self aware, and you know that as well. And I think it goes back again to the power and quality of your storytelling I think it will just add so much more and it'll unlock so much for you I think. So going back to the whole media thing because recently there was the whole apology. Yep. What were your thoughts when you saw that initially?
1: Yeah when I saw the staff apology at first I felt really validated because I was like man I've been calling out racism in the media for so long and I felt like no one listened to me. But then I started to get kind of angry about it because I was like, man, the media have contributed to a lot of the identity crisis of Māori because we've grown up for so long just seeing ourselves in the media in such a negative light um, in such an untruthful light and such a bad light. And I remember being at my best friend's house, who's Pākehā, and I remember when the six o'clock news would come on and I would get like anxiety. And I would just like want the ground to swallow me up. And like, Mm. you know, the introduction news would come on and then I'm like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? So I have been at my friend's house where it would be like, no, like they're looking for a criminal described as Maori uh, Pacifica and like they they will look at me. There was another time when the Kahui twins, I don't know if people are familiar with that, but that was um, a child abuse case where these two twins died. That was all over the news, all over the front pages and everything. Like, you couldn't get away from it. And I remember being at my friend's house, and one of the family members said, it's always the Maori that are killing the babies, you know? And um, I didn't know what to say. So there's so much that has gone wrong. And I think the stuff apology is a good step. But, I mean, just recently they gave an opinion piece to Don Brash. So it's like
0: you can't see this but i just rolled my eyes so <laughs> hard <laughs> but yes anyway sorry
1: oh well, yeah that's what i mean like cool like you've made that step you've not acknowledged like cool that's the first step but what happens after that right i mean yeah. you you can't you can't keep doing that like you can't you know like if you if you're going to make that promise and you need to stick to it and 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 also i also think about this the stuff apology is a little bit of me is cynical because i think okay are you doing this because you actually want to be better or are you doing it because Indigenous storytelling is now a trend? You know, people want to hear our stories now and you want to do, you know, you're trying to jump on that bandwagon. I do want to say like a big mihi to Carmen Parahi, who was the journalist that led that. And I definitely am behind her 100%, but it's her bosses that leave me feeling a little bit sceptical.
0: Yeah, so I think it is a case of wait and see what happens because... That's the only way to know whether they actually mean what they said. Exactly. And so what I've seen so far hasn't been promising. Hmm. So. What is the future then that you envision for, let's start with media. What I envision is
1: that the bosses or the the leadership in the media is no longer just kākehā males and that there's more women and there's more women of color and there's more Māori women who are in these leadership roles. I think that's the first step. It's not enough just to have more Māori journalists. You need to have Māori editors, right? And you need to have Māori producers and you need to have Māori in every step of like the leadership levels or making those big decisions because actually everything starts and ends at the top. I'm also excited about this movement of Indigenous storytelling. And I think that's the future is that more of our stories are going to be told in, in like a rich and diverse way of, of being Māori.
0: What about for yourself then? So you're still on your journey, I guess, of discovering who you are.
1: I was thinking about that on December 31st when I was making my New Year's goals. And I was like, okay, what are my goals? And I've got the two goals, like the a goal of like learn, being, becoming fluent in Reo Māori and finishing my second book and having that published. But then I just decided that I don't want to measure my life by my success in that sort of way and the career success and everything like that. I think my life should be measured by like my spiritual, of how of who I am as a person. So what I envision and what I hope is that I'm able to really be sure of myself and my identity of being Maori and in my identity of my faith as well, my identity of who I am because, if you take away everything, right? Who are you like as a person? If you took away all your successes, or if you took away your identity as like a daughter or as like a sister, or like everything, take it all away. And who are you? Like when you look deep into yourself, into your wider. I hope and I envision that I'm able to really know who I am as a person and be really hundred percent confident in that. And I don't think I'm there yet, but I'm on that journey, I'm on that
0: walk I'm confident that you will get there. <laughs> Thanks, Keo. You're you're going in the right direction, I think. <laughs> um, and finally, I was walking around a few wick halls recently and I couldn't find your book. Where do I find your book? Okay, so my book has almost sold out everywhere. Oh, wow. And they're doing a second
1: print okay. run. It's funny you say that because I have no more copies If I got like 20 copies and like all my friends and family stole them. <laughs> and so I went to go buy a copy from my friend who's been looking and I and I had to go into the bookstore and I had to ask for my own book. The bookstore owner knew something was up because she was like, what's her name again? And I'm like, Shiloh. And I was embarrassed. <laughs> and then she just looked at me and I was like, okay, it's my book. <laughs> she, like, <laughs> she just like thought it was like the funniest thing, but she was like really... Yeah, she's really nice about it. Anyway, so I ended up buying my own book in the Devonport bookstore, and that's for my friend.
0: So yeah, it's very hard to find now, but there should
1: be like a whole new run coming within the next month.
0: Yeah, cool. Well, I can't wait to follow your journey this year and hopefully catch up with you at the end of the year to see how far you've come.
1: Thanks, Tao. Yeah, I'm really excited for the journey, and thanks for
0: having me. Yeah, of course. It's been awesome. Thank you, as always, for listening. I hope this two-part interview helped you understand a bit more about New Zealand's colonial history and the intergenerational impact it's had on Māori. I also hope you have gained some insight into what it's like to be a journalist who is part of a minority group in New Zealand media and know that there are journalists out there like Shiloh who are challenging the narrative, are fighting for the truth, and are telling the stories that truly matter.